this week on Life and Faith. We can just think them. No one may never know we've got judgmental attitudes, but in our own mind, we can be very judgmental. I lost my mom when I was 14 years old. Whatever's going on in their life and whatever experience they may have had, they've got something to give. I was absolutely stunned as to how a family could survive that. I still don't know that guy's name. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Well, we've been doing this podcast for quite a while now. This is our 12th year, and we've had some fantastic guests over the years and some excellent conversations. And lately, we've been looking back through some of the episodes in the distant past and thinking it would be good to revisit some of these, especially as not all of you, the Life and Faith audience, have been with us the whole time we've been doing this. So we are going to resurrect some of these from the early days and maybe do it a few times a year. Things have evolved a bit over the years. We used to be 15 minutes per episode, and eventually we thought we should go out to about 30 minutes, which is what each episode is these days. So as a bit of an experiment, we're going to listen back to two of these today. They're unrelated topics. The first is a conversation Justine Toe and I had about food and feasting and what that tells you about who we are as human beings. The second one is addressing the topic of judgmentalism, and we do that with Steve Liggins. Why do we so dislike people who are judgmental? And can we make judgments without being judgy? But first up, feasting. Well, today we're talking about food. Of course, it's crucial to life, but uh, the way that we eat goes beyond mere survival. I've got a friend who went to a fancy restaurant recently, and she had a degustation um, menu and walked out with a bill for $800, actually, because they, um, of course, had the matching wines to go along with the course. So obviously, this tells us that the way that we eat goes beyond mere survival. And if all the cooking shows on TV tell us anything about our relationship with food, it's that we love it. We love it so much that we are happy to labour over it. I think it's really edible art and one of the key ways that we celebrate the good life. Well, I've got Simon Smart here with me and uh, you've written an article on this theme, Simon. And you're interested in the way that eating, one of our most physical experiences, also has a spiritual dimension as well. How did you first get interested in this topic? Probably through my wife. She's a bit of a foodie. And uh, by getting married to her, I realised how ignorant I was about food. And she's really opened up my eyes to this. And um, she's not only uh, a great cook but she appreciates really good food and fine food. Well we live in the age of the celebrity chef and shows of course like MasterChef and My Kitchen Rules show the delight that we take in preparing and enjoying fine foods. Now I can be a bit of a cynic when it comes to these sorts of matters. Um, do you think that these kinds of shows celebrate you know a spiritual aspect of food or are they more about middle class indulgence you know spending $800 on really really fancy food? It could be that we're this is just a sign of the self-indulgent West uh, using food as a distraction for ourselves because we lack deeper sources of satisfaction. That's one take on it. But more positively, it could represent a growing sort of appreciation for the aesthetic pleasures of life to which eating can introduce us. So I recently interviewed a chef from one of Sydney's top restaurants and talked to him about some of the artistic elements of this area of cooking. 
in my line of work and the restaurants I've worked in, I get to use some really amazing produce and I really enjoy being a part of a team to create special food or food that we hope that people will love. Cooks are traditionally their tradespeople and it's a craft and it's a, it's a manual labour kind of a job but then there is an aspect to it which is very dependent on a person's aesthetic and uh, there's elements of beauty and grace and tastefulness and intelligence. When you think about what you're trying to create for people on your, one of your best nights, what would you like people to come away with? Happiness, um, great satisfaction and pleasure and I suppose a whole experience not just connected with the actual food that you're eating but the, the people that are serving it to you and talking with you and the way the, the food may also remind you of something that made you happy or it's familiar. So happiness I suppose is the, the end. Now when we uh, we're driving up the coast we might pull into Maccas and it's kind of fuel for, for what yeah. we're doing but the sort of dining, fine dining that you're talking about, it doesn't have to be the, the best of that either but just that element of, of feasting together. Would you agree that that has some indication that we're more than, we are animals but we're more than that? Absolutely. I would hope in our food the happiness that we would want people to have and satisfaction and also the sense of uh, memories are invoked often with food and that's not really something that you would imagine that goes with the food as fuel kind of a picture. So yeah, I'd, I'd have to say that there is that it's, it's bigger than just the uh, chemistry of swallowing something that fuels your body. Okay, so it's Sunday night, fridge has got a few things left there. What are you going to throw together, typically? At my house. It's probably the, uh, the two-day-old sourdough bread and the half an avocado with some sea salt and black pepper on top of it. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Alex Woolley, thanks for talking with us. No problem. Now, Simon, let's talk about your article. Um, in your article, you distinguish between feeding and feasting. Can you tell us the difference between the two? Yeah, well, we all feed. Like All of us are animals. We need food as a fuel, I guess, for our survival. So there's certainly that aspect to it. And sometimes when we sort of pull the car in on the coast trip, you know, into McDonald's, just pile into the, you know, the Big Macs and whatever, it has more of that type of feel to it. But then there's eating and dining and feasting. I think that um, these are human customs and traditions that involve social interactions. They incorporate at their, at their best. They can incorporate grace and generosity and art, beauty, taste, hospitality. So eating, in a sense, can at least be leading us towards something that's a little bit more than just the physical. There's something perhaps even transcendent in all of this. Yes, okay, so there's this sense that though eating is physical and it really, you know, reminds us that we are physical beings who need um, food to get by, there's also perhaps a spiritual element to it. Very interestingly, you've written that eating can tell us much about what it means to be human. Now, why do you think this is important to recognise? Well, I was reading a book by Leon Cass, who wrote a book called The Hungry Soul. And in that, he says that eating reveals something about our innermost desires, appetites, longings, and shedding light on what is universally, permanently, and profoundly true about the human animal, and really its deepest hungerings. Now, he sets this against this sort of scientific paradigm of the world, which where there's an emphasis on the materialist account of reality. But what he's saying is it can't quite match with our experience. So when people just want to talk about us as only physical beings, he's saying eating gives us a hint 
that that can't be true. There's more to it than that. You could, you could imagine this situation, Justine, for a moment. A dinner party. Right? You've got a whole lot of people around a dinner table, old friends. Now, as they go about this uh, process, there would be a scientific way of describing it, uh, of what transpires. So the biochemists, the anatomists, the physiologists, uh, even the neuroscientists could have something to say there and accurately describe things like chemical processes in various parts of the body and the brain and so on in all their complexity and detail. But it wouldn't come close, would it, to telling you really what's going on. You know, we can imagine one guest who can't quite get rid of that sort of acidic feeling in his stomach as he tries to forget the way his business is going down the tubes. Uh, another person's sort of proud of her success and she's as proud as anyone as she brings her grange to the table in, in this sort of seeming great gesture. And then you've got the host there who's all smiles and he's sort of great love for his wife and he glances across the table and sees her. And then she's looking around, feeling a bit guilty of that late arrival home from work recently. There's a whole lot of things that can be going on in this sort of situation. Someone else you know, takes a mouthful of their favourite dessert and they're cast back in memory to their childhood at their grandparents' place, this sort of thing. The point being that there's a whole lot more happening than only physical things. Yeah, so you're saying that you're looking at the poverty, I suppose, of just a strictly scientific or materialist account of what's going on because um, our human experience is so complex and can't be reduced to that particular language. It can't. People don't want to be reduced to that. They have this deep sense that there's a lot more going on. They know there's also the biology of what they're doing there, right? And even their emotions, people can still recognise that there might be some sort of chemical aspect to this. Of course there is, but they also have a sense that it's more than that. There's something more happening here. It's because we think we're more than just material beings. But, but this whole understanding of um, human life as a material um, entity, it actually persists. I mean, um, you've written that in the Australian Book of Atheism that one writer states that science has determined, this is a quote by the way, science has determined that living bodies are animated by nothing more than all the complex living processes working within them. You know, which in some ways paints the human as like a, a bag of chemicals and reactions, etc. Yeah, science has done nothing of the sort, by the way. Okay, I have to take your word from that. I'm not a scientist, but um, just going on. So in, in the realm of food, this would mean that our tastes that find something absolutely incredible must be a lucky combination of flavours that our you know, chemicals react to well. How can you be sure that this isn't what's going on? It could be. It could be true that we are just physical beings and we have to face up to that. That's a, that's a possibility. Uh, what I'm saying is, is that I have a deep sense and I suspect most people do that that's not the case, that there's more going on. As we drink that cup of coffee, maybe that's what it is. It's just a, a combination of lucky coincidences that have brought us to this amazing taste and the, you know, whatever it is Smell. we might. Yeah, all of those sorts of things. I just can't believe that's true. Now, she said in that quote that science has proven this. Well, of course it hasn't. We're moving into the area of philosophy once you step into that sort of territory. And it is a judgment that you have to make. Uh, it's a sort of an existential problem there uh, when you start to think of the material body and what might be beyond it. Science hasn't proven that it's only material because it's talking about different categories. I mean, I can't prove that it's more than material, but I, I do have a deep sense that, that it is that. So it could be that, that way, but um, when I hear people like A.C. Grayling, the, the uh, famous atheist, talking about the hard problem of conscience that's yet to be solved, I'll say, well, I'll say it, it's a hard problem because where does conscience come from if we are only physical beings? And he says it will be eventually solved. He's confident in that, but I, I think he's being a bit optimistic. 
Leon Cass suggests that there's a huge gap between what he calls the ethically sterile nature studied by science and the morally freighted, passionate life that we live as humans. That's what I'm talking about here. Yeah, so science can't fully explain the way that we live our lives. But, you know, like just to be devil's advocate, couldn't it also be true that people, especially those who believe in a God, could it be true that they also overlay everything with meaning and significance that might not actually be there? Maybe. And, and it also could be true that, and some believers might accuse me of this, that I'm sort of drawing a bit of a long bow here between eating and you know, the, the, what it is to be a human. life and yeah. ex- existence. Yeah. I think if we think about it long enough, though, we'll see some of these connections. Uh, and th- that's a usual criticism that you've pointed out. And it usually says believers need God in order to believe God, that type of thing. You sort of, uh, they need something so they believe in it. But the reverse applies as well. We've talked about this before. If I don't want to believe in God, I might be attracted to all the things that tell me there isn't a God because it gets in the way of me living my life in the way that I want to live it. Mm, That's a good point. When savouring a good meal, you know, some people will enjoy the combination of tastes and flavours is what you've been talking about. But, you know, they may not necessarily find themselves considering those, you know, all these transcendent aspects of eating and feasting that you're talking about, um, it may not lead them outside of themselves. You know, this is a possibility, right? It is. And, and it's true. I don't sit around every time I eat something, even something really nice, and think about how the transcendent aspects of life, but I do sometimes. And, and I think when you stop to think about this, it sort of leads you in this direction. So, yeah, it could be that. At its best, I would say the practice of hospitality helps us share our lives with each other. There's a communal aspect to it. We sit up at a table and we look at each other and we talk. You know, in, in our family, we try to sort of say that, you know, we want to sit around and talk. We don't want to be you know, on our iPad or, or on other things or thinking about other stuff. It's, there's a social part to that. Um, Jesus, of course, emphasized this sort of radical hospitality at the Last Supper, uh, which I think tells us a lot about the, uh, something of what it is to be human. He linked it with the practice of eating. He broke bread. Uh, he told his disciples, this is my my body broken for you. He did the same with the wine. My blood poured out for you. So, I mean, like so far we've been talking about food and what food can reveal about what it means to be human. But, you know, what other human experiences might this apply to? Well, I think that's a good point, Justin. Food here is really just one example of things that can tell us we're more than just physical beings. I think there are lots of others. I would say things like the appreciation of beauty, of love, of music, and you know, wonder, of sacrifice, of community, of being other-centeredness. All of these things are pointers. Uh, they're big hints. They, they take us in a direction that, yes, we're physical. Yes, we are uh, animal in that sense. We're physical beings. Um, we want to affirm that. But we're also more than that. Our, the biblical worldview, the Christian worldview would tell us we, there's a lot more to us than just the physical. And partly that's why we uh, regard every human being as so valuable. It's a really fascinating topic. And I think that for a long time, we've had this idea that in order to encounter God, you've got to go sit in a mountaintop somewhere. But you know what we've been talking about today shows that God meets us in the everyday. And that's such a wonderful opportunity. So I hope that um, you know the next time you sit down to a good meal that uh, you might think about some of these transcendent aspects of eating and possibly encounter the God that uh, has created all of them. You're listening to Life and Faith, and today we're experimenting with two conversations we had in the early days of the podcast, and we thought these were worth revisiting. Now, we make a shift from food and feasting to judgmentalism. 
Why is that a personal characteristic that's so objectionable? Can we make judgments without being judgy? Here's this conversation from 2012. Today we're talking about judging others. Uh, It seems that these days being judgmental is the one thing people can't stand. There's a very common feeling in our culture that you can be just about anything you want, but don't dare come across as self-righteous or judgmental. And that's understandable. Judgmentalism is a very unattractive trait in other people. And uh, to talk about this, I'm with Justine Toe and also Stephen Liggins. Uh, Steve is a former lawyer, uh, an Anglican minister, and I happen to know that he was a pretty scary fast bowler in his day. Uh, he's just submitted a PhD thesis at Sydney University in the Religious Studies Department, and he's done a bit of thinking about our topic today. So Justine and Steve, why is being judgmental such an unappealing quality? Well, I reckon it's because there's this sense that when you're being judgmental, you're speaking from a position of authority and you're looking down on other people. And that is completely taboo today. Uh, And also because we have this attitude that no one should tell us um, how to live. And, you know, why should you care so much about the choices that I make? Um, And so it also kind of carries this assumption that, oh, if I'm being judgmental, then I'm better than you, basically, and I can tell you how to live. But I think the most toxic thing about it is the attitude. It's the way that it just, it's a really kind of, I'm distancing myself from you. I'm not going to make those kinds of choices. It's, it's a really unattractive attitude, basically. Yeah, Steve, is it, is it a sense that you're lumping the person in with their behaviour? So you're not making a distinction between them and their behaviour? I think that's certainly the case. You're really writing someone off when you judge them. Uh, if judging another person means to make some sort of nasty, negative assessment of them, uh, it's pretty hard to take. And I, I'd agree with Justine. I think the reason why people dislike judgmental attitudes is no one likes being on the receiving end of it. There are some classic examples of obviously being judgmental, aren't there? What what are some of those? Well, actually, I came across this great story a couple of months ago where um, they did this study and they found that if you eat organic food, you're more likely to exhibit judgmental behaviours. So you have made certain food choices and you think that this is the way to eat. And so maybe if you see someone with a burger, you're like, I don't know. But I have to admit, the, the fact that I take even the slightest bit of delight in this sort of news <laughs> shows that I perhaps have some judgmental attitudes when it comes to organic food, you know, that sort of thing. Not that I think it's not a good idea, but, you know, people can sometimes feel a little bit self-righteous about their decisions. Well, they've got a good reason to because they pay three times the price for that food. <laughs> I know this. Steve, other things? Yeah, uh, look, judgmental attitudes are very widely disliked, but they're very widely practiced too. Uh, and I'm myself responsible for them. Um, If being judgmental means to make a nasty negative assessment, which is what I think people generally think, we're making nasty negative assessments of people all the time. Um, There are so many generalisations prevalent in our culture. All rugby league players hate women. All um, Muslims are terrorists. Uh, Demonstrators should go out and get a real job. You know, that sort of thing. And even attitudes to specific people, it's also disliked, but it's very common. So, Steve, tell me, why do you think it's so hard not to be judgmental? I think there are two reasons. Uh, One of them is internal to us, one of them is external. Uh, Internally, we can just sometimes want to just let off steam. Uh, Someone's done something to annoy us, we make a really unloving negative assessment of it and express it. You know, someone annoys us at work, they do the wrong thing. Maybe they do do the wrong thing at work, but when we respond to it, we're just letting off steam, giving them a piece of our mind. 
But also I think there's quite a lot of, surprisingly, social pressure uh, to be judgmental, to take on the judgmental attitudes of our culture. You can sometimes see a bumper sticker on cars, you know, Australia, love it or leave it. There was a movie in the 1980s which I was a great fan of called Breakfast Club where these five different high school students are put on weekend detention in a library. One of them's sporty, one of them's a glamour, one of them's an outcast, one of them's a bully, one of them's a nerd, I guess you'd say. At the start, they have all these judgmental attitudes towards each other. By the end of the day, they've become firm friends. But the question is, when they return to school on Monday, will they still be friends or will they return to those judgmental attitudes towards each other? And the implication is that, yes, they probably will. And the, the idea is that they return to their social groups, which are very distinct, and adopt those sort of ad- attitudes again. The relationship is the key, Justine, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, as well, we, we shouldn't leave social media out of this equation as well because so often if it's just, you know, me on my phone or me on the computer, I can kind of forget that there's a living, breathing person on, on the other side of the computer and if I might just want to drill them for something that they've posted online. Um, So I think that we're really good at having our opinions sail out, you know, and if they're negative and going to hurt someone, doesn't matter. I don't have to like look them in the eye and and see how that affects them. So I think that we need to pay attention to as well. And it's this idea that not only the direct to the other person you get annoyed with and you say it to them, but it's that gossip talk as well, that people are you're judgmental, maybe not to them, but with other people in talking about them. And you can be incredibly unloving in the way we do that. We don't just express them to the person or to other unrelated people. We can just think them. No one may never know we've got judgmental attitudes, but in our own mind, we can be very judgmental. And it brings up this point, Steve, if it's possible to make a distinction between making a judgment and passing judgment. Is that a good distinction? Yeah, I think the most helpful thing we can do is to figure out, well, what did Jesus mean by it? He talked a bit about this, and lots of people like this stuff that Jesus talked about in saying to people, don't you be judgmental, because he seemed to be particularly harsh when it came to religious people who were judgmental. The idea that we should not judge others is so big in our culture, I think it's, it comes initially from Jesus' teaching. In fact, someone once said it's probably Jesus' most well-known piece of teaching today, don't judge others or you'll be judged. He said it, it was pretty much... Not unique, but he went further than anyone ever had gone before uh, in saying that we shouldn't make unloving negative assessments of other people. Now, what Jesus meant by judging was making an unloving negative assessment of someone else. He famously said, don't worry about the speck in someone else's eye when you've got a plank in your own eye, right? This is partly what you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. When Jesus uh, gives his teaching uh, in the Bible about not judging others, uh, it's associated with other stuff and one of the parables is the parable of the speck and the plank and saying don't take the speck out of your brother's eye and ignore the plank in your own which is basically saying look don't worry about the minor failing someone else has when you ignore the major failing in your own life you know deal with that first before you start worrying about the other person. Uh, Jesus does say though that it's appropriate to make assessments of people in the same section of the Bible he teaches that we can judge a tree by its fruit. It's an orange tree because it gives oranges In the same way, you can assess what a person is like from their words and actions. But the key thing for Jesus is all our assessments must be loving towards the other person and also we need to have an awareness of our own failings. Uh, You know, we've got stuff in our own eyes if we're trying to point out the same problem in others, so we need to be humble about it. Why was Jesus so harsh on religious people that he felt were being judgmental? Yeah, Jesus forms an interesting contrast to a lot of the religious leaders of his day Jesus felt that the way certain people lived were not the right way 
but he still embraced them. He still loved them. He still accepted them. He still related to them. He counted them his friends. Uh, there were some other religious leaders around at the time known as um, Pharisees uh, who felt the people weren't living the right way, but they would distance themselves from these people. Uh, Jesus may disagree with people, but he still loves them and relates to them. Uh, and that's the key difference between Jesus's attitude and the attitude of some religious people of his time. Yeah, Justine, Jesus seemed to have been the, the genius at this, didn't he? Being able to really mix it with and eat meals with and hang out with people who the society would have seen as outsiders or sort of the low life of society. And somehow he's able to get the balance right. He's making judgments but loving them. Yeah, that's right. Um, and what I think is particularly incredible as well is that in that parable where the woman is caught in adultery and um, she gets dragged before Jesus and all the religious leaders are trying to entrap Jesus. So they're like, oh, come on, Jesus, let's, you know, here's a stone, let's all have a, have a throw. Um, and then he says, well, you know, anyone without sin can basically go first. And so he shows in that moment this ability to pause, to kind of reflect. And while he himself doesn't have a problem, he knows that everyone there has some failings in their own life and that they are therefore in no position to do that. So his ability to pause, consider, kind of look at the situation in its entirety, I think we sometimes skip over that in the rush to judgment, but it's a crucial um, step into the process. Now, Steve, uh, Jesus did do that, those things. It's very incredibly loving, but he, he also called people to a different way of living, didn't he? Yes, Jesus called people to, to follow him, uh, to align themselves with him, to live his way. He offers them forgiveness. He offers them strength to do it, particularly when someone follows him. But yeah, it is, it is a different way. But his way is also a way which is uh, marked by love. One of the particularly radical pieces of teaching Jesus gave was that we should actually love others, not just the people we like, but also people we might otherwise have considered enemies. You might think we don't have enemies today. We've just got people who annoy us a bit, but he calls us to love everyone. So whereas I guess followers of Jesus should be marked by living the way Jesus taught, the strongest thing almost is that we should be seen as people who love each other and others. Is it fair to say too that there are certain situations which call for judgment and that the judgment would necessarily and rightly be more harsh than say another situation? I think I'd probably use the word assessment. Uh, I'd take the word judgment in this context to be a negative judgment, but there are plenty of times when it's good for us to try and wisely and lovingly make assessments of others. Um, someone might ask you to marry them. You want to make an assessment, is this the sort of person I want to marry? Uh, you may be going for a job. Are these the sorts of people I should be working with? Uh, you might be trying to find a babysitter for your kids one night. Now, are these the sorts of people I would feel would be responsible in looking after my children? It's appropriate to make assessments, but in all our assessments, we should be concerned about the good of the other person, showing love towards them, can I just pop in there and just say that I really agree with you that in some ways it's, it's impossible to avoid making assessments and even if you have though the um, intention to do it lovingly and for the other person's welfare, we, we can deceive ourselves at the same time, right? And we might be blinded by, I don't know, sexism, racism, etc. Um, and yet also be still in some way guided by the love of the other person. So how, should we always be second-guessing ourselves at the same time? I think that it's easy to work out what being judgmental is and we should be loving in our assessments, right? It's hard to do. Uh, I can say it, but I don't do it all the time. I drive down the M4 a lot, uh, one of the motorways here in Sydney. Often people speed past me driving in a very foolish manner. I can accurately assess that as being unsafe driving, and that perhaps it would be good if they were caught so they could amend the error of their ways. But often I just get angry at the person and think, you know, 
<laughs> unloving thoughts. Uh, I've gone there from ha- making an accurate assessment to being uh, judgmental of that other person. Okay, so Steve, this is the key, uh, according to you, that the loving attitude to the other person is, is the vital thing. What are some examples of how that might work out practically? You gave one there. When, when you mentioned uh, children, I think one of the ways that people are very judgmental, I'm sure we all are, is when it comes to styles of parenting, raising children, and it's the thing you cannot talk about, right? I'm a father of two young children and parenting practice, people have different opinions on, they're strongly held and people can be very often judgmental. Um, you may see a young mother bottle feeding the baby. People can be very judgmental. Oh, she should be breastfeeding, right? Um, you may have a uh, woman with a young child at work. Oh, you know, people can be judgmental. She should be at home looking after the child. Or maybe if she is, um, other people might think, oh, she should be earning a, a salary. And people ver- in those situations almost never know the full story. And you can imagine you fill in a whole lot of other details to those situations. And you might think, oh, okay, yeah, no, I know what's going on. And Justine, are there other examples where you think, yeah, we can make assessments but be really loving about it? If being judgmental is about standing on high, then it's about getting on the same level as the person and showing a real concern for their welfare. And also, as what Steve was saying before, you know, being really clear on your own failings as well. And that's much less likely to make you attack someone else on the basis of theirs. Well, it's a great discussion. It's good to have it with both of you. It's a challenge. But uh, thanks so much for Steve for coming in and talking through that. That was great. Thank you. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. I hope you enjoyed going back to these two short conversations. We had fun revisiting them and thinking about how Life and Faith has evolved over the years. And we'll do this a few times in the year and see how it goes. Thanks, as always, to our producer, the incomparable Alan Douthwaite. Please do share this episode or any other episode with people you think might enjoy it. We'd love it if you would leave a rating or review. That helps get it out to more people. You can email us at podcast at publicchristianity.org. We'd love to hear from you. Next week. I was really scared that I was going to die and I was really scared that the infection that took my legs was going to come back and, and kill me. And an infection did come back when I was in the burns unit and they had to really up my antibiotics big time and um, you know she had saved my life and I felt as if if she was around me that I was going to live that I was going to survive. <laughs>